Hey, good morning, everyone. How you doing? Hey, Richard. My name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here at Crossroads Bible Church and just want to say welcome this morning. What a great day to lift our voices and give Jesus all the glory, right? Um, we got this weird tension right now, like Steve said earlier, after Thanksgiving, before Christmas, but we really treat it like Christmas already, right? Uh, we sing Christmas songs at church and we're just kind of getting ready for that. And I want to just make light of something else. There's other people that feel like their birthday has come and gone already. You know what I mean? I'm one of the minorities that loves Thanksgiving. That wishes we amped up for Thanksgiving the way that we amp up for Christmas. But Thanksgiving is just one day it comes. You work the day before. You work the day after. It's just one day. And I feel like the older brother Christmas is stealing all the glory a little bit. You know what I mean? But the reason, I just want to bring something to your attention. The reason that I love Thanksgiving so much is because it's one of the only holidays, it's the only one that I can think of that gets better as you get older. Think about that. Every year that passes, something is torn from your heart from Christmas. You know what I mean? Maybe you come downstairs a little too early and you catch your dad slipping presents under there. You know, there's all these lies associated with things like that. Sorry, kids, plug your ears. I'm just saying, with Thanksgiving, every year that passes, I'm just like, this is amazing. This just gets better and better. These flavors that you used to just gag over now become something dear to you. And I don't know how it happened, but for my family, Thanksgiving has become something. It's kind of a big deal, and it's not something that we sat down and talked about and said, hey, what holiday do we want to be a big deal? We just, we just all in our hearts decided Thanksgiving together, I think. And the reason for it is, is because we're a family. And growing up for me, it was a big deal to sit around a family table and have a meal. I had a spot at our table. No one else sat in that spot. You know what I mean? Some of you might have similar experiences. We really value that time around the table. We spend hours there. Because it feels safe to us. It feels comfortable to us. We know each other inside and out. We know the good and the bad. We share jokes, memories. We have mannerisms that don't make sense in any other context except for family. And I'm sure that you all have the same things that, that you laugh about, that you try to tell your friends, and it just doesn't make any sense. You had to be there, right? One of those things for me, I'll let you into a little family Weatherhead family, just one of the best memories I have. Uh, and I grew up in a tradition where every Sunday we'd go to church and we'd say the Lord's Prayer and we'd hold hands. Some of you have been there too. And for whatever reason, it's like when you get each other's hands, you're not allowed to let go until, for, for no matter what, until everyone's done and they all let go. And so what it meant with having brothers is if, meant if my brother's eye itched, my hand went right up with his, and it's just like scratching his eye while we're praying, you know? And it didn't mean, it didn't, like, affect me at all. It's just what we all did. Well, my little brother, Troy, he had to sneeze. Yeah. But he had enough tact to know, okay, he's not going to bring up other people's hands to sneeze, right? So what's he going to do? He doesn't want to sneeze all over the back of this neck in front of him, so... He decides in his head to, like, crouch down and sneeze. 
We've all been there. Cold and holding like grocery bags or something. I don't know. So he decides to crouch down. But you got to remember that in the Catholic Church, there's often pews in front. And so here we are. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Achoo! And he smacks his forehead <laughs> on the pew in front of him. And it just silences everyone. And to this day, it's one of my favorite memories. We... I mean, he's fine. We talk about it every time we're together. We laugh about it. Everyone has a different perspective on it. It's just so good. There's also another dynamic to family that I'm sure you're all aware of. Every family has its own share of hard things, right, that they have to deal with. Whether it's a hard choice, a hard decision, whether it's a death, or money problems, or just some heart attitudes that need adjusting. We've all been there. And again, it might not seem like the best thing to be going through at the time. But what I've learned is that if families work together through these things, and, and look, at, look for every possible healthy outcome, and they press into God and say, where are you leading? Then oftentimes these families come out refined in these processes and better off, and stronger. And I want to bring that this morning, the idea of family, right into this spot this morning and say, what does it look like for us as Christians? Because even though we're awful at it most times, the Bible paints a really clear picture of what you and I are supposed to be. We're the family of God. Brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, sons, and daughters. The family of God made one by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the baptism into his name. And the message that we've been walking through in the Gospel of Luke, it's a family-oriented message. The message from Luke chapter 6, it's meant to be talked about like this, like a family. Jesus is grabbing 12 of his closest friends and he's setting them aside as apostles. And he's looking them in the eyes and say, listen, if you want to be part of this, if you want to be part of what I'm offering, part of the new family of God, there's some things that you need to know. And there's some attitudes that are going to need to change. See, things that have captured your heart and your mind in the past, whether it's riches, comfort, fame, these are things that we as a family are no longer going to be running after. Instead, we're going to link arm in arm and go after the things that seem foolish to the world. Poverty, need, rejection, and pain. These are the things that should be like a magnet and should be drawing Christians towards them. More often than not, though, they're the things that push us away. And this morning, we're going to open our Bibles and read from Luke 6. And I wish we could read something a little more happy or a little more fun. But we're going to listen to a hard message from Jesus. But he's, he's spelling out what it means to be part of his family. And I want to be part of that. And I know that you do too. So let's, let's go there together. Luke chapter 6, we're going to read verses uh, 27 through 42. And so once you find your spot, you can stand. We have Bibles in the back, too. If anyone needs a Bible, feel free to just put your hand up. We want you having a copy of God's Word. 
Again, starting in uh, verse 27. Remember, there's a, there's a great crowd around Jesus, people coming from all over to hear this man speak. And listen to what he says. To you who are listening today, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. I just want to make a little side note. We just got back from Jordan, and this has never, that line has never made more sense to me. When you see two men who know each other and love each other, they, they approach, shake hands, and they pull in, and they give each other kisses on the cheek. One here, two here. Just opens your eyes. When, someone, when you lean in for that kiss and someone slaps you on the cheek, go back in. Give them your other cheek, too. Someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Because even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. And then your reward will be great. You'll be like children of the Most High, because He's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them these parables. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is God's word. You can have a seat. Can we start by doing something? Simple question. Sunday school, simple question. Who is it that is preaching that message to those people? Jesus. Now, let's take it to like uh, fifth grade kindergarten. Who is Jesus to you? Is anyone brave enough to shout out who he's been to them? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Anyone else? Yeah. For me, uh, it's a healthy reminder to just put some of those titles on Jesus. This is God. This is the Lord of everything. 
Colossians says this about Jesus, that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, whether powers, rulers, authorities, everything has been made by him, through him, and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from him dead, so that he might have the supremacy in everything. And again, this morning, we need to keep something in mind as we think critically about what Jesus is saying. We need to know that that God, that Jesus is for us. He's for you. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in this morning, the God of the universe is on your side and he's for you. He's not trying to trick you. He's not saying, hey, love your enemies, guys, and then turning to God the Father and saying, hey, we're going to get them good, right? He's for you. There's a tendency sometimes to think, whether we admit it or not, we read things like this and we say, I found myself doing this this week. Like, God, don't you want good things for us? Don't you want good things? And as I asked him that, I just felt like the Holy Spirit was just saying, no. Good things? Maybe he doesn't want good things for me. The more I asked it, the more I'm convinced that God wants the best things for me, for you. And that all along we're getting caught up going after good things, holding on to good things, and it's blinding us to some of the best things that God has to offer us. You know, I think it's not graduation season, but we can still remember Jeremiah 29, 11, right? I have a plan for you. It's written in every graduation card. I have a plan. Good things uh, to prosper you for hope and a future. We think, well, Will, what do you say about that? God's making these promises to people who have been exiled. They don't have anything. They've humbled themselves at the lowest place in their life, and they've turned their eyes back to God. And he says, because you do that, because you seek me with your whole heart, because your eyes are off good things in Babylon and on great things, I have a plan for you. Believe it or not, it's that type of lifestyle, that type of going low, that is the path to the thing that Jesus calls the abundant life. Jesus has abundant life to offer us. And this is the way. And for me, it's that type of understanding that really unlocks some of the, the harder passages of Jesus, the harder words. He's laying out a foundation for what his family is going to look like. And as the creator of the family, as the patriarch of the family, he's the one that gets to choose what values that family is going to cling on to. You ever think about that? You and I don't get to decide what it means to be a Christian. We act like we do sometimes. We get to decide whether or not we'll bow our knees to Jesus. We get to decide whether or not we're going to put the things that he values over the things that we value. We get to decide whether or not we want to listen to the Holy Spirit and follow where he goes. But we don't get to decide if we do those things what the outcome is going to look like for us. He does. 
It's not like the apostles are writing down everything that Jesus says and then going back later, voting on their top ones and putting them in the Bible. We like to do that sometimes. What Jesus says goes. And what does Jesus say? What does he start with? To everyone who can hear me right now, love your enemies. Love the people that you hate. Think about Jonah. Think about Jonah making this trip. He's fleeing from these people because he hates these people. And you know what? God says to Jonah, the people that you hate most in the world, I love. Jesus has... uh, a zealot in his group. He chooses 12 guys, and one of these guys, it says in Luke that he's a zealot. A zealot is this religious sect that would carry the Torah in one hand and a, and a, a blade in the other. And they would say, their, their phrase was, love your brother and hate your enemies. And Jesus probably looked right at him and he said, love your enemies. And I want to know, how are we doing with that this morning? How are you doing with loving your enemies? And I know that doesn't hit everyone square between the eyes, but for some of you, you're you're just saying, man, I'm blowing it with that. Love those who are hard to love. We all have people in our lives that take up so much time, take up so much energy, and we find ourselves just thinking, oh my goodness. And I'm not dull. I'm probably that person to some of you. People that are on the outskirts. God says, love the people that are really hard to love. Pray for the people that are really hard to pray for. People that have hurt you. People that have lied to you. People that have wished bad things for you. Pray for those people. Ask that God would soften their heart. Ask that God would bring them near to his heart. That his voice would be clear to them. That they would be able to hear and discern and go after him for the rest of their lives. Jesus says, treat people well. Treat them really well. Even when they don't treat you that well. There's this great uh, passage in Romans where Paul's kind of doing the same thing and giving stuff, giving instructions for the church. And he says this verse that always catches me off guard. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in treating each other with just the most respect and honor not in the type of like taking a picture putting it on instagram and talking about that person i'm talking go up to their face say something genuine nice to the person to their face people that have said bad things about you say something nice about them treat them really well jesus says give Give to the people who are in need. Give to everyone who asks of you. Everyone. That's hard for Christians to hear because we think we want to make good investments on our money. And we want to give to people that aren't going to buy cigarettes and alcohol. When Jesus says, give, maybe it's about your heart, not theirs. Give. Give to anyone who asks and don't make a notebook list of who has what and when it's coming back. That's a hard lesson. 
But if you're able to answer these questions, it becomes a little easier. Don't you know that your life is more than just abundance of possessions? And don't you know that your heavenly Father knows what you need and longs to provide for you? Ah, but those two things just opens you up to be just a, a conjugate of just like back and forth, back and forth. God, you've given, I'm giving it away. Jesus sums up this first paragraph by uh, saying the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. I was the kind of kid that was never doing to others as I wanted them to do to me. And so I heard this all the time. If you're a parent, you've probably said this a thousand times. But I wonder if we ever stop and ask, really? Because that's not how any of the rest of life works. Why does Jesus say this? Jesus is saying things like, do to others as you want them to do to you because, again, he wants, he wants the family of God to look different than any other family in the world. And, and the more that I press into that, the more that I, I just keep saying, has Christ made a difference in your life? Do you look different at all? He wants the new members of his family to represent the name of the father really well. My dad would always say to me as I'm leaving the house, Will, don't bring shame to our name. Represent it well. Whenever I leave, he would say that. And what would be going on in my mind is that everything I do, everything I say, it comes back on my dad and on his dad. The name Weatherhead is lasting. And think about the name of God. Colossians 3 says that whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do in the name of the Lord. And it just hits me. Represent him well. In how you work, how you spend your time behind your desk or in your truck, whatever it looks like. Represent God well in whatever you do. And how you speak. Is your mouth just like an open floodgate, or is there a guard there who's standing watch over the things that come in and go out? Represent him well in the way that you treat others who are created in his own image. It's a hard thing for us to learn. Don't only love people who love you. Don't only do good to those who do good to you. Don't only lend when repayment is guaranteed and there's compound interest on your investment. This is exactly how the world works. And it's hard for us, but Jesus repeats himself because he knows it's hard for us. Verse 35, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to those who can't repay. You know why? Because when you do that, you look just like dad. It's exactly how our father works. He's merciful. It's how he loves. It's how he gives. It's how he prays. It's how he treats other people. We're able to prove our adoption by the way that we treat those created in his image. And the reward that we receive, it's sonship. It's inheritance. It's everything that comes good with his name, you know? Like, my, like when I got pulled over last, the cop looked at my license and goes, I know your dad. Throws it back in and I drive away. 
right? Like, all right, all right. And that is such a pity, like, pitiful representation of what we get with God's name. Everything he has is ours. Don't you know? Everything I have is yours. He's kind to the ungrateful. God is kind to the wicked. You ever think about that? For me, it's easy to, to, to think about because he's kind to me. He's kind to you. Romans 5.10 says that while we were still enemies of God, God sent his son to bring about reconciliation for us. His enemies, not his family. We would do that for our family. Not his friends, we would do that for his friends. Not even just indifferent. While we were the enemies of God, God sent his son to show us his love, to bring us into his family, to open the door that has been closed, back up into his heart, into his presence. We're able to love our enemies. We're able to do good to those who are doing bad to us because we were enemies who have been loved. We are the ones who are doing bad and we're shown good. Jesus shows us the way. In every gospel, we find stories of Jesus doing all of these things over and over and over again. And one of my favorite examples of this is found in John chapter 13. It's the night that Jesus will be betrayed. It says that um, Satan had entered Judas. And it also says that all authority and power and dominion have been given over to Jesus, and he knew it. And so you have these two guys in the same room. Satan enters him. All authority, all power. You're hoping to just like see something come to blows, right? But you, you know the story. What happens? Jesus takes off his clothes. He puts a towel around himself. He takes the water and the basin, and he kneels down before people who are probably really hard to be around. People that just wouldn't get it time and time and time again. People who, in society's eyes, were outcasts. He kneels before them, takes off their sandals, and begins to wash their feet, their gross feet. One of them was in every way an enemy of Jesus. Yet he stoops down, pours the water, and just knowing him, he, he probably looks these guys right in the eyes. He probably says encouraging things to them. He probably builds them up in every way. We even see Peter uh, talking back and forth to him, saying, no, okay, if it's just my feet, then wash my whole body. And he says, when I wash you, you're one with me. You take part with me. And he goes down the line. Washing everyone's feet. And he comes to Judas. He takes Judas' sandals off. He loves Judas. He says, you can still uh, have part with me. He treats Judas like he's made in the image of God. And it challenges me. He washes Judas's feet. 
And he's saying that this is what the family of God should look like. In the same chapter, Jesus says, as I have done, so you should do. I'm leaving you an example of what it means to be a servant, what it means to be a brother. It's a new pattern. Not the pattern of the world and the ruler of the air, but a pattern of a good, good father. And it's not even just a pattern that, that other people can see. Because sometimes, you know, that builds us up when we do good things and other people see them. Jesus goes on. Verse 37, he starts addressing things that can't necessarily be seen by other people. Because it's not just, a, it's not just an outward appearance of things. He wants your heart. You could take the golden rule and say it this way. Think about others as you want to be thought about by them. Make judgments on others in the way that you want to be judged. Jesus says, do not judge and you won't be judged. Do not condemn and you won't be condemned. He's not talking about doing away with discernment. He's not talking about church discipline or courts of law. These things need to be upheld. Rather, Jesus is saying is that we as a family need to not have only our actions look like the good father's actions, but our hearts and minds need to be like his heart, like his mind. This is just driving me crazy because I think about, man, having the mind of God, having my thoughts look like his, and I just Google search, how many thoughts do people have every day? The low end, says Google, is 50,000 thoughts a day. The high end, it's probably for women, is like 80,000. <laughs> but if it's on the low end, that's 38 different thoughts every minute, all day, every day. And this is maybe just poking at things, but dear, are you, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts like? Do you have godly thoughts? Does your mind run after things that God's mind is running after? Or does your mind run after gossip and criticism, judgment and condemnation? We as Christians, we need to have our minds renewed. And not just like the, like the catchy, everyone knows, Romans 12 verse, we'll throw it out there. No, really, listen. Do not conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We can say that, but are you doing that? Are we doing that, is my question. Jesus is calling us there. Paul says again, we have the mind of Christ. And we can prove it by the way that we think about others. We can take our thoughts captive. So we don't go out of our way looking for bad in other people. We don't go out of our way to criticize and to search for faults in those around us. We don't make judgments about these people. And I think... You know, when you can expose the root of that sometimes, it really helps it, overcoming it. And I think the lie that we fall prey to so often is that we become more by making other people less. And it's not, that's not too far out there because that literally is how a lot of the world works. But we as followers of Christ, we can't live like that. That, that type of attitude is poison in the family of God and it's actually anti-Christ-like. We don't become more as followers of Christ by making others less. We're not climbing the ladder of Christian success over the backs of our brothers and sisters. 
We become more as Christians by living in the light of God's mercy and his grace. By realizing more and more that we are the ones that God has reached out and grabbed and saved. People that we judge, people that we criticize, the people that in our hearts we harbor hatred towards, those are the ones that God says, I'm crazy about them. Condemnation and judgment come as uh, a result of the lack of grace, the lack of mercy, but more so I think they come as a result of the lack of remembering who you used to be, who I used to be. The reason that we don't judge, the reason that we don't pronounce condemnation on other people is because I was that person. I was that person. I lived as an enemy of God, and he's brought me near. And the blood of Jesus is paid for my judgment. It's paid for my condemnation. And I tell you, if Jesus can do that for me, no one is beyond his net of grace. No one is beyond his reach. His arm isn't too short to save whoever it is that you're thinking about. The attitude of, of I'm better than, or look at them, or uh, I don't sin like that. It's not an attitude that can last long in the family of God. You're going to be searching for other people who are, are dysfunctional to, to gather around. Our lives rather should be marked in the next few verses. Forgive and you're going to be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. I mean, listen to this. A good measure, pressed down, shaking together, running over, it'll be poured into your lap for the way that you give, it'll be given back to you. What an awesome picture. And I think uh, right away um, that my understanding is probably wrong. When I first read it, I always go after like things, money, possession. And it just kept falling short. But what if you insert the, the family values of God? Love, grace, forgiveness, acceptance, generosity. This verse takes on a whole new beautiful meaning when you plug those things in. To the extent that we're giving these things to our brothers and sisters, we're going to receive them back, not only from our spiritual siblings, but from God himself. You can think of Jesus again as the perfect example in the life that he offers us. Even though Jesus is the judge of the world, he never rushes to point out sin. And when sin finally comes to the table, is Jesus throwing rocks? No. He's offering mercy and grace every time. Jesus gets no joy from pointing to your and my shortcomings. But actually the Bible says that when people turn and repent and come back into the family, that the angels in heaven are rejoicing over it. That's how he is. Jesus knows men's heart. He has every right to condemn. But even to the point of his death on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He offers us life in the place of death, forgiveness in the place of punishment. And I know that because many of you are the actual stories of God's grace. You're the stories of the generosity of God, the forgiveness of God. And now you get the chance to be that, that grace, forgiveness, generosity to others. What an amazing thought, huh? 
That God would use people like us, broken people, sinful people, to bring healing, to bring the Father's heart to others who don't know it. We get to be like our master. Our passage today ends with these two parables that kept throwing me off for I just would stand up from my computer and just shout, I don't know what to do with these. But I, not, I think now that these parables are super important to the how. How do we do this? Because all along we're given instruction in how to love, how to give, how to think and treat others. Instructions that we should really just be applying to our lives and living out. And I expect Jesus then to say, okay, get up off your seats, go and do them. Write them down, memorize them, make a list of all 15 commands, and don't go to bed at night until you can check every one of them off. We actually prefer that, I think, sometimes. But it leaves me feeling a little bit like this is impossible. Like it can't be done. But I have a really hard time with that because I don't believe in a God who calls us to things that we can never attain to. I don't think that's what the writers of the Bible are trying to say when they say, flee your life of sin. I don't think they're saying, well, you can't do it, but I think they're calling me up to something. So I asked the question, how? How is this possible? How are we able to be like the Father? And the answer is this, by humbly submitting yourself completely to his eyes, to his judgment. And I say completely on purpose. By keeping nothing back, no area hidden. All the sin, the covetousness, the greed, the hatred, the blindness, the sexual perversion, the hypocrisy. Let it be exposed by a good judge. Let it be exposed by the merciful Father. These parables, they're not like the rest of Jesus' parables. They're not... uh, Leaving the disciples like scratching their head, like whispering to each other, like, what does this mean? Can the blind lead the blind? No. Can you be useful to get a tiny speck of sawdust out of someone's eye if you have a plank or a log or a board in your own eye? No. Can you be useful to pulling someone up out of a rut of sin or a tar pit that they're stuck in if you're stuck in the same spot? No. The only way that we're able to be useful in the family of God, the only way that we can love like he loves, give like he gives, think like he thinks, is if we're continually being cleansed by the blood of Jesus. If we let the light of his eyes shine into every darkest place, if we let the water of his grace and mercy run to the deepest places in our lives, cleansed by him, forgiven by him, able then to to lead others and call others into his family. And this morning, I just, I want to give us an opportunity to do that. To come before the Lord and ask for this, this cleansing, ask for this, this light, ask for this water to go to the places that nothing else can reach. You don't have to deal with all of these commandments today. Pick one, one of these things. And bring it before the Lord and say, God, would you help me? Spirit, would you fill me? Start with just one. What is it for you?
greedy. Do you have a garage full of things that other people need? Do you hate people who hate you? Have you prayed for anyone lately? Do you roll up your windows as you're approaching a corner with a homeless guy there? We need to allow the Holy Spirit to have access to those thoughts, access to those places, without being scared or frightened, for it's the kindness of God that draws us and leads us to this repentance. And I want you to fight a thought this morning. It's a thought we have a lot during sermons. I know someone who really needs to hear this, right? Oh, my brother, oh, my cousin really needs to hear this message. I just want to challenge you. I need to hear this message today. And you need to hear this message today. Let's pray. Just have the lyrics to this song. Uh, God, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. And I just think even right in this moment right now, these things as I'm saying them, they're coming out of my mouth and, and my own heart is condemning me saying, that's you. And I just want to offer myself before you. And I know there's others here this morning who are in the same spot. God, we offer our lives before you. We say, search me. Know me completely. If there's anything offensive in me, let it be brought to light that I might, I might bear it before you and lay it at your feet, Jesus. We want to be members of your family. We want to call you brother, call you dad. So come, Jesus, and cleanse us.